It's time for Series 3 of Shooting the Breeze. As we continue our focus on women's basketball, we'll be talking to more of the amazing players in the WNBL, the coaches that inspire them, those people behind the scenes that do so much for the sport, as well as so many more from across the Australian women's basketball landscape and beyond. It's the 42nd WNBL season, the longest-running women's professional league in the country, and this year, 2022, Sydney will stage the FIBA Women's World Cup, featuring the 12 best women's teams on the planet, playing right here on our turf. There's so much to come in this season. Subscribe, like, and review our podcast so we can get more Hoops content to you. We want to welcome on board the Island Pacific Soap Company as our first commercial partner. They make high-quality, all-natural, handcrafted bath soap. Check them out online, and a big shout-out to Paul for all the support. I know for a fact that so many people have reached out to the president and, and Moroccan players, especially from North Africa and the Middle East, and their minds are blown. They, they're like, oh my God, I can't believe you're doing this. What's it been like? And to be able to kind of shatter that ceiling here and to create awareness around it, that's actually been more rewarding than anything that's going on on the court. We're thrilled to welcome coach Liz Mills back to Shooting the Breeze. As head coach of AS Saleh in Morocco, she's continuing her pioneering journey of coaching elite men's teams on the African continent, giving us a unique insight into coaching within the bout. As always, there's fierce and real conversations around the tough realities elite coaches deal with. Liz is really open on the pressures to constantly adapt on the fly alongside the nuances of operating in different leagues, countries and cultures. You can appreciate how many frontiers she's navigating right now. In this epic episode, we get a little deeper into the BAL, AS Saleh and their progression to the qualifiers in Rwanda, as well as the challenges and needs for our pioneering women in sport at the elite level. Welcome to Shooting the Breeze. Joining my co-host Jacinta Gavind and myself today, it's one of our favourite coaches, Liz Mills. Liz, welcome back to the show. Great to have you. Well, thank you so much for having me back on. Uh, I love you too so much and the, and the show. So it's always a privilege to get to talk basketball with you both. <laughs> oh, the feeling is 110% mutual. Thank you. Absolutely. So, Liz, you're in Morocco. Yes. This is, this is the new home for the time being. Um, I landed here in February and... It's my first time in Morocco. I'm living in Rabat, and I've got to say it has blown me away. Uh, it's a beautiful city, uh, beautiful people. I'm really lucky that, to be here for the next six months. Fantastic. And you're the head coach for AS Saleh, and you've been in the bowel, and mm-hmm. you've qualified to go on to the, to the next round. From just some of the stuff that we've seen on social media recently, you've got a very excitable crowd of fans as well. It's very lucky to have been able to join a team like ASL. Uh, there have been a highly successful club team in the continent for maybe the last five, six years, either ending up you know, third, second or first in club championships, was the, which was the former FIBA format for this new Basketball Africa League, which is an NBA-backed continental championship. 
So it's the first time that the NBA has developed a league outside of North America. And obviously because of the massive talent that's in Africa and potential for growth. And uh, this is the second season of the Basketball Africa League or the BAL. And Morocco, we were lucky to walk away from our conference games three and two and qualify for the playoffs in Rwanda, which will be later in May. Uh, the fans in Senegal were amazing, and I'm really lucky that in Morocco we're now inviting fans back to games. And I coached in my first league game on Saturday, and I could barely hear myself think. That's how loud the chants were, and you know. And then they do fireworks at halftime in the stadium, mind you. Uh, not ideal, but the players loved having them back, and we had a great win in front of our home crowd on Saturday, which was which was great. Sounds like chaos, but I, I want to be a part of it as well. It sounds great. It sounds like a once-in-a-lifetime experience, like complete investment from fans to yeah, the point where I, they're willing to risk their safety. See, oh, yeah. I mean, I, I had been in a World Cup with the Lithuanian fans and I thought they were pretty hectic. But the Moroccans take it to a whole new level. And I've seen fans in Tunisia and Egypt and even in the Middle East and I've always been like, wow, I wonder what it feels like to coach in front of that. So, yeah, I, I now know. There's like police people like lining the court so that fans don't jump on the court and so that you're protected as well. So it was a interesting experience and I'm sure I'll remember it for a very long time. So when you saw the police and the security line the edges mm-hmm. of the court, I mean, yep. we're probably more used to seeing that on a bigger scale event like the Super Bowl or something like that. Um, yep. probably could have used it on the weekend when Buddy Franklin kicked his thousandth goal. But <laughs> yes, I saw that. Case in point. Um, but did you know, go, going into the game and seeing that all around the court, did you know why they were there? Or was it a realisation of like, oh, no, they're here in case the fans storm the yeah. court? Yeah, no, so originally, because we only had a, maybe a half of our stadium filled. So we're not at 100%. We're not allowed 100% capacity yet. So if anybody's seen the video, just imagine that times 100 when we get our full fans in, which I'm slightly worried about now thinking about it. But um, <laughs> I was like, there's a lot of police here. I'm like, why? And then they, the, you know, like the stormtrooper look. They came in at half time, And I was like, should I be worried? And no, they kept it within their benches and it's more just in case they get overexcited. Because we won by such a large margin, it was okay, I think. But if it had been a close game, it would have been interesting. But it was reassuring to know that, you know, they're there in case anything gets out of hand. I'd love it if they played the Darth Vader theme at halftime when the Stormtrooper... Uh, yeah, that, that would have been awesome. But see, like I'm in our change room, like talking, so I would never see it. But uh, uh, yeah. yeah, I think it was it was a great atmosphere. The fans obviously missed coming in. Our players missed having the fans there, and it was interesting to see them play at a different level because the fans were there. Yeah, I can't wait to see what happens during playoffs. Wow! Last time we talked to you, you're in a completely different part of Africa. Yep. Just for for any of the listeners who aren't across your journey, mm-hmm. how did you end up in Morocco and how mm-hmm. did you end up in the role of the head coach for this team? Well, I think it, it all comes back to, given the fact I've spent 10 years already on the continent, people are very aware of me in Africa. 
aware of my coaching, be that, you know, last year I was head coach in Kenya, national team for Afrobasket. I think that really launched my career in terms of other possibilities, especially for North Africa. This is a pretty hard market to crack as a female coach, given the Muslim background and culturally it's, it just hasn't happened. And so given my success with Kenya, I think that opened the minds of a lot more markets than I realized. And people were amazed at how Kenya performed at Afrobasket. And originally I thought I might stay on with them for the World Cup qualifiers. And then I decided uh, probably around mid-November not to continue with them. And so I started thinking about, well, I want to go back to coaching in leagues. I haven't coached in a league since 2017. So as a coach, I thought I need to go back into here and develop that. And I had been in Angola in 2019 when A.S. Sally had played in the last FIBA club championships and finished second to Augusto, the Angolan side. And Morocco, I've always respected. They've developed some of the best players in Africa. And I was like, okay, I want to see if I can work with A.S. Sally. I knew they didn't have a head coach at the moment. And so I reached out to them. I have a mutual friend of mine, Mohamed Seka, who is a former player but now lives in Canada but is still really connected to the club. And so he speaks English and through him I negotiated with the president of the club to come across and work with with these guys, not only for the BAL but for the Moroccan league as well. And so, you know, it benefits me being in terms of a long-term league and being able to coach in the BAL, an NBA-backed continental championship, made sense on all levels. And to get the opportunity to work with some of the most experienced players in Africa, um, I've got some great veteran players, some amazing young guys coming through and some interesting imports, to say the least. Now you say, uh, given that our podcast is purely audio for for the time being, we have Uh the visual. You say interesting (laughs) imports with a big smile on your face. Give us us a hint, with a diplomatic hint as to why you said it that way. um, It's been one of the most challenging coaching experience in my career. I'll say that. Not just with my imports, but in terms of the different mentality that I've found in Morocco. They're very expressive, which, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, as an Australian, just culturally, that's very different from us. And, yeah, very expressive and emotional. And this is not a word often associated with male basketball players, but it should be, regardless of the fact that they're Moroccan. I've had previous experience with male teams is the hidden narrative is they're just as emotional as female players. This is something that everybody, oh, it's just their ego. No, they're emotional. And so I've struggled with that. I've got a Spanish player as well who's um, very of the same mentality. He's not expressive, but he's he carries that kind of emotion and and I don't think that should be said in a negative way. It's just me as a coach not having come across it. And so me having to being able to develop and handle that kind of emotional outburst or um, that high or that low that I'm not used to and being able to come up with strategies to deal with it. It says more about me as a coach, actually, than it says about them as a player. And so that's been a very sharp learning curve that I've had to, you know, get on board and speak to other like my mentors and other coaches about learning how to handle that in a manner 
Um, and I've got a lot of big personalities. That's the most diplomatic way of saying it. Uh, um, big personalities. I mean, you always, I've dealt with a couple before, but to have multiple in one team and juggling that has been an interesting experience. Do you think that part of this whole thing with the big personalities is because it's like you're a new coach and they're, they're almost like feeling you out as much as you're feeling them out in terms of the way, you know, how far mm -hmm. we can push it and how far we can't? Oh, yes, for sure. And the big personalities aren't necessarily the Moroccans. And I've got players coming from Europe who have played in FIBA Europe Cup, Champions League, uh, I've got Americans or both players um, have played in college, one at Maryland, one in Miami. So big programs or have played all around the world and now coming here to play in Morocco. And so they've got a certain level of expectation. And obviously these guys have never been coached by a woman before. I think it can be a bit jarring when, especially in Middle East, you get a lot of Serbian coaches who are, we all know how Serbian coaches behave. And so energetic. They're, they're energetic. very energetic. Yeah. Energetic. Very energetic, yes. very passionate. Yes. Passionate coaches. And so I feel like given the fact that I've already got a group that's highly expressive and emotional, I'm not adding to that. I mean, if you've watched any of the BAL games, I'm very calm, which is very different to how I coach Kenya because they needed more of a cheerleader coach. They needed someone to get up and get them going. Whereas in Morocco, I've got, I've got to be the calm, reasonable one because if I'm getting up here and crazy with them, and you could see that with when we played against the Guinea team in the BAL Slack, um, their coach absolutely lost the plot and that, that led to the players also getting unraveled. And I said to my guys, I'm like, yo, just let it flow because let them get out of control. Let them lose the game. We just stay calm. So, you know, they basically took themselves out of the game and we ended up winning. I mean, we would have won regardless. I was really confident with my guys by that stage. We were really rolling well as a team. So I think regardless of what the other team did, but it was a good lesson for them to be like, let them lose the plot and unravel and we'll stay cool, calm, collected. Yeah. Sounds like a really delicate balancing act in both situations where you said you yeah. were kind of polar opposites with different teams of either being the hype man or being the calm one. And either way, yeah. it's uh, as a coach, you're ultimately the leader of the group and mm -hmm. having to be the model of the most, I guess I'm going to say functional behavior for that context. Like it's going to be dysfunctional and to your mm -hmm. disadvantage if you also get hyped up with them, like you said, and there's that counter transference of you're yelling at me. Well, you're yelling at me and we're just going to go louder. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like nothing's going to yeah. get achieved with that kind of. Um, and, and don't get me wrong. <laughs> yeah, don't get me wrong. I did like in our game against Bera, who's from Mozambique, you know, uh, it, things got heightened and I got heightened with it. And then on reflection, I was like, yeah, I can't be doing that because then it just gets, and it threw me out of the game, to be honest. And so I think if I can't be cool, calm, collected, and players are going to have outbursts and they're going to get passionate. Um, and so I've got to be that counterpoint for this team. And to be honest, my natural coaching style is more definitely cool, calm, collected. Kenya, it was draining having to be that kind of coach. And having to always get up and be expressive and march up and down the sidelines yelling. I was like, oh, 
cool, now I can relax into this role. But it took them a while to get used to it as well. They're like, why aren't you getting in our face? Why aren't you telling us we're useless and we, we can't do And I was like, that's just not my style. Like I'm trying to build you up. I shouldn't have to tell you that you're useless for you to go out and play properly. But that's what their former coaches have been like. So it's been a learning experience for both parties, 100%. To me, that seems counterintuitive because Mm -hmm. particularly culturally, you know, North Africa, they don't react well to, not that anybody reacts well to that sort of being spoken to that way, but particularly North Africa where the reality is most people there if you meet them and you, you know, once you've said, hi, how are you, shaking hands, yep. you're a friend for life. A hundred percent. They're so warm and welcoming, right? But like this, this team in particular have had Moroccan and Serbian coaches. And so th- that's what they're used to. Or if something like, say, for example, um, someone takes a bad shot and he's already down. I don't have to be like, why the F did you do that? Like, yeah, yeah. like I don't need to get in their face. These are adults. These are highly experienced players. He's already gone, my bad. Why do I need to address it? I might address it to him after. You know, if it happens a couple of times, we'll have a conversation. But people were like, coach, why aren't you getting in his face? I'm like, why would I? Because it doesn't make sense to me at all to do that. But they're like, no, a coach should go and tell him off. They should sub him and get him out of the game. And I'm like, well, welcome to my style. And I think it's going to take long, like I've only been with the team for a month, right? Or five weeks. So it's going to take a while. They'll say to you, oh, you're too soft. I'm like, no, there's several different ways to cook an egg. Mm. Yeah. It's like one of my, one of my favorite sayings is there's a hundred different ways to skin a cat. And yeah. there's one correct one for each situation. And exactly. That's, that's where the skill comes in. It's working out which is the right way to approach the problem. Yeah. And like... The player already recognised they made a poor decision. Yeah. And that is half the battle already won when you're a coach because Mm -hmm. uh, you want to encourage your players to have that basketball IQ and that autonomy to be like, oh, actually, that was a bad shot. Next time I'm going to rethink that. Um, And if they don't reflect on that understanding, that's when you go, hey, listen, next time do this. Uh, yeah, so yeah. There's no point kicking a player while they're down if they have already recognised that they made a poor decision. But um, exactly. But also, you know, in the response of being, you know, perhaps being criticised as too soft in your approach, mm-hmm. look at your record. <laughs> <laughs> I know. To the playoffs, I'm pretty confident what you're doing is working, considering your record. So yeah. Well, I don't like to toot my own horn. I like to, you know, for. <laughs> You can do it for me. I'll just bring you around. <laughs> um, I'm, 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 I'm free and willing to do it. Yeah. yeah. Hey, yeah, look, hey, look it, Rwanda's in May. So, you know, if you two have, <laughs> aren't doing anything, you guys calling the game would be amazing. Oh, um, yeah, that would be so much fun. Yeah. So I think, yeah, it's, it's a learning curve for everybody. Um, it's an, Look, just being in Morocco and being able to coach in Morocco and – in the Arab world. I mean, I know for a fact that so many people have reached out to the president and, and Moroccan players, especially from North Africa and the Middle East, and their minds are blown. They, they're like, oh, my God, I can't believe you're doing this. What's it been like? And to be able to kind of shatter that ceiling here and 
to create awareness around it, that's actually been more rewarding than anything that's going on on the court. It's interesting that you've had that sort of reaction from other countries because Mm -hmm. having been to Morocco, I found that Morocco was a very, I'm not going to call it liberal, but... Yes, in terms of, yeah. Open-minded. Yep. uh, You know, and I'm surprised that the people sort of think, how's it going? It's like... you can see the results. It's going mm. well. You know, well, it's not exactly. like it's not like you got open revolution on the court for the yeah. players. Like, hey, no, no, we're not doing this. It's actually yeah. it's really positive. And that's the thing because I'll admit it. When I I had never been to Morocco, the only North African country I had been to is Tunisia, and they're a bit more conservative. And so I was pleasantly surprised by how open, how liberal inverted commas. It has been, and I, and then it made it made me realize if it was going to be anywhere in the Arab world, it was going to be Morocco. Mm. And I mean, let's be honest, there's no way I'd be doing this in Qatar, just to put the extreme. No. Yeah, you know? absolutely not. Um, and that's why you know people from Qatar, uh, United Arab Emirates, um, Jordan, all these kind of countries are like, "What are you doing?" Like, and then Egypt, for example, and when going up against USM, Monastir, they're like, man, we'd love for you to come and coach in Tunisia. And that's something that I would never have even thought about, and Egypt as well. And so by opening people's minds, opening the doors, I might be able to end up coaching a lot more in North Africa than I ever imagined I'd be able to. But in saying that, I do miss my sub-Saharan teams. Um, <laughs> you know, there is a different different way of training and a different mindset around training that I definitely miss. I don't necessarily see in Morocco. What have been some of the similarities and differences going from coaching the Kenyan national team in a basketball cultural sense, but also yeah. in a nerdy basketball sense of like you as a coach and your coaching strategies, what you're implementing yeah. and, and things like that? Well, definitely in terms of X's and O's, it's a lot easier to coach this Moroccan team. They are just North Africans in general, um, because they lack that athleticism that you see in sub-Saharan teams, they're more focused on skill development and learning the game because they have to be able to in order to combat that physicality that they see from the South. That gap is very closed now, but 10 years ago, there was an extreme difference unless it was a Senegal, Nigeria or an Angola um, who had developed that mentality. But North Africans, like I can walk into training and be like, hey, we're running flex, for example, and they'll know it. Or if I put in a new set, they'll be able to remember it and play it and use it on the weekend. Whereas with Kenya, it took six weeks to build any kind of offense. And then I ended up having to just use concepts. That's not to say that they can't, but it's not taught from a young age. And when you're a 35-year-old player and someone's like, let's teach you how to run offense. That's a really hard obstacle and challenge. And it's a credit to them for trying. They just haven't had a coach that's worked with them on that kind of strategic game. And so it's going from working on concepts to being able to implement strategies, but then on a training mentality, the Kenyans, right, will train as hard. If anything, I have to tell them to relax, right? They go hard. Every drill is competitive. Every situation is competitive. Every scrimmage is competitive. Whereas Moroccans, what I'm finding is 
they're just there to train. And even to make things competitive can be a struggle. It depends on how they feel on the day. Like if they feel like making it competitive, they'll make it competitive. But if not, it doesn't matter if it's first to 21 or losers have to do this. No. So I've really had to adapt my training because I can't work on a skill unless it's competitive. They won't drill it for the sake of drilling it. Yeah. Wow. That's uh, not an answer I was expecting, to be honest. Yeah. I think sometimes, you know, when you're in the grind of a season, like I'm joining these guys mid-season. And so they might just be like, hey, we've already trained for six months. Like halfway through, whereas for you, it's been two weeks. So I've got to take that into account. And I'm, I'm just saying in the Moroccan context, I know for a fact that Tunisians have a different mentality. And let's also give them the fact that for two years in Morocco, there was no league. Wow. Yeah, so, of course. So, so this is the first year that they're coming back. And I think maybe it's that lethargy. Um, it's that, oh, we don't know if, you know, next week they might just go, hey, league's done. So there's that kind of level of uncertainty as a player. Maybe this time next year, they'll be back into it knowing that there's that stability that's going to be in the league. So, I mean, that's just been my experience. Maybe with another team in Morocco, it might be different, but it's been interesting. Wow. So let me ask you about the Bal Sahara mm-hmm. Conference. And, you know, yep. you had a lot of tough games in there. There's a whole lot of different nations that sort of came in and out of it. Mm-hmm. Give us your perspective on these because mm-hmm. – what we got to see, there was some really interesting play. Yeah. And the games were relatively close. So there's, yes. there's it seems like it's a really tight contest. Mm-hmm. Uh, to me, anyway, is a little bit surprising given the breadth of nationalities involved and yeah. the very different cultural approaches they take to things. Yes. So this conference was considered the harder conference. So the Nile conference is playing in April. And from an outside perspective, and if I hadn't been coaching, I would have had clear favourites and I would have expected certain teams to just stomp all over the smaller teams. And it, it wasn't. And I think it was actually refreshing that it was so competitive. Like each game, there was one or two 20-point wins, but like they were very rare and it was competitive like it was one quarter where they got up to 20 and then it was competitive for the rest of the quarters. Um, and so for me, I was pleasantly surprised. I think it's great for the competition that it was so competitive. And I think, like you said, Paul, someone like Monastir from Tunisia, everybody thought was easily going to win our conference. Um, the big game was AS Sally versus them. But it turned out that Reg from Rwanda was the dark horse that no one saw coming. And we still maintain here that if we had been able to play reg as our last game, things might have been different. Um, but that's just from our perspective. But it was great. Coach Pack, who has, I think, 10, 12 years as an assistant in the NBA, had played in the NBA as well, did an amazing job with that Rwandan team. And I'm so happy. I mean, they're hosting playoffs. So for them not to have qualified would have been disastrous. So I'm glad to see them qualify and Tunisia, as usual, USM did exactly what I expected them to do, uh, except for that loss, which, but they had a lot of injured players coming into that last game. And, but it's always exciting to see a heavy hitter like that get a loss, you know? Um, and so Slack from Guinea qualified, which was surprising. Not many people would have thought that. I'm surprised Bera from Mozambique. They had had amazing qualifiers to get to the BAL 
they weren't able to adapt from game to game. And so I think from our perspective, we came in having not even played a game as a team together. And so that first game was, you know, trying different lineups, seeing what worked, you know, not being, it was obvious that we hadn't gelled yet. And so it was great to see us getting better every game. And I'm still really disappointed we didn't get that win over Tunisia. That's the team now in, for me, I'm like, I've got to beat you guys, be that at the club level or national level. And so, uh, but I actually walked away from that Tunisia game. We came back from 20 points down against them and we ended up losing by six free throws at the end, pushed it out to six. Like I actually walked away from that game feeling like we won because to see us get down in a hole and to know that we can fight back against a quality team like that, I'm like, that gives me so much confidence as a coach because I didn't know if we were going to lay down and take it. And so the fact that we didn't, means I've got a, a group of players who have that mental strength to fight back. Uh, and that's because that's something you can't coach. I was very glad to see that. Um, and then we went on to beat Slack from Guinea and Duke from Senegal. And it was always good to finish the tournament with two wins and, uh, under our belt. And we're feeling super confident come Rwanda. We've got quarterfinals. We have to watch the Nile Conference and see who ends up in the second place for them. And then uh, we get back into the lab and start analysing and cutting film and getting ready to play them. So have you got any forecast tips for how Niles going to wash out? Well, I mean, the obvious choice is Zamalek from Egypt. They won the bar last year. But in a lot of people's minds, USM was the best team from last year. Um, so we've gone up against USM. We've measured ourselves against them. We feel fairly confident. Um, Zamalek playing at home in front of their crowd I'd be surprised if they did not come first. But then Petro from Angola look really, really good. I would love to see that Petro-Zamalek game, uh, which is kind of midway through their schedule, that's going to determine who's top. I don't think we're going to see a team like Reg, you know, a dark horse in the Nile Conference. Um, I'd say this is the weaker conference for sure. It's really... Zamalek Petro, one of them's going to come first. And then I would say FAP from Cameroon. They, they just play really hard. Like the locals who play in Cameroon are tough. They will outwork you every second of the game. And they have a, they have a good coach who's worked with them for a couple of years. So there's that stability. And then the interesting teams are Cape Town Tigers, the Espoir from Congo, and then Cobra from South Sudan. It's up to those three teams to come in fourth and it will be interesting to see who that fourth place team is. Okay. Now you've given us a reason to tune into all those games. <laughs> Definitely. Because right? what I've seen, it's, I mean, it's the same game, but it's a different mm-hmm. style yes. that's played. And what really surprises me is, as you mentioned, sub-Saharan play is different again, yes. which makes these competitions really interesting. How do you adjust your teams to be able to counter what the other team's bringing to you? Yeah, well, exactly. So when I'm playing a team like FAP, for example, from Cameroon, I would be harping on about transition defense and rebounding. Like we have to force them to play in the half court because that's where they don't want to be. And then if I'm talking about a North African team, I'm saying get the rebound and fly. Like you want to make this 
a running game. They want to slow it down. They want to run their sets. And I would be changing my defense constantly because it throws them off. It makes them uncomfortable. And so just understanding what their advantages are each. Um, and don't get me wrong. You get like Angola, sub-Saharan team, plays very much like a North Africa. Like you'll see when you watch Petro play. Petro Zamalek is, other than the fact that Petro will be a lot more athletic. So there are teams, don't get me wrong, in, in sub-Saharan Africa who can play in that half court, play very structured. And then there are other teams that want to play up tempo and run and gun, and which is actually really hard to coach against because you don't know what they're going to do. You can't sit in a film session and be like, oh, they're running horns or they're running flex or they're sometimes they set a screen here. Sometimes they don't set a screen at all. And so it makes you as a coach, you have to adapt on the fly and you have to adapt in game. And that can be a bit uncomfortable for people. If I was a coach from Australia who had just been coaching in Sydney and someone said, come and coach in the BAL with Cameroon, good luck to them. You know, because we are so heavily structured in Australia, mm. so heavily structured. Like, and like we mentioned, not talking about the player that we were talking about, it's because we are A plus B equals C. Mm. And therefore, if it doesn't equal C, good luck. That's actually what I love about African basketball, the spontaneity. And even when they are playing in a certain structure, they're so much more open to using their initiative. They're not set in their ways. Whereas you watch an Australian team, like Jacinta, you watch under 18s. Mm. How much spontaneity was shown during the weekend? Uh, I would say, honestly, more than I expected, but perhaps maybe my expectation of the spontaneity and the uh, traditional read and react kind of game, free-flowing game, adapting to what's in front of you, I feel, I've probably said it too many times maybe on our podcast, I feel that it's definitely been lost in our junior Mm -hmm. female programs in the last five to ten years. So perhaps my expectation of seeing that now in juniors is probably low, but I I did see a bit of it, especially with the the Metro team, a bit more spontaneity, a bit more read and react. And that was, like you said, a lot harder to guard because being Mm -hmm. on defense, you're always being reactive. Yes, um, and you know, being able to be proactive and anticipate stuff on defense is a really high level, high functioning skill. Can't really expect mm-hmm. all mm-hmm. under eighteens, if any, to have that that skill just yet. But yeah, it's just for context for listeners too. While we were off air, we were p- talking about a couple of particular Australian players who kind of brought up the conversation of being robotic versus being adapted and playing mm-hmm. the game in front of you. So. Yeah, the, the A plus B equals C isn't always correct. A plus B could equal D, E, G, Z. Mm-hmm. Um, exactly. And it's up to you as a, as a player to try and formulate what that answer is going to be because it's not always going to be what you expect. Exactly. That's the beauty. I was going to ask you, how do you think an Australian team mm-hmm. would react to a coach coming from Africa and coaching here given that underlying spontaneity that almost makes up the DNA of the game there. Yeah, I, I think we can all be honest that they would never have an opportunity in Australia, first and foremost. Let's be honest. Okay. But I'm Let's still, be honest. But in terms of... But in terms of okay, <laughs> yeah. I, I'm not arguing, but it's yeah. a what if. Yeah. Right? yeah. Mm-hmm. I think, um, yeah, 
I've never thought it from a reversal point of view. I think some Australian players would be thrown off. They'd be like, wow, you're, you're letting me just play. Because yeah. a lot of the time it's, yo, just let us hoop, just let us play. And I think having that level of freedom might be off-putting for some players who are so used to the structure. What do you mean I can just come off this and make a decision? You know, or created for. <laughs> yeah, you know, um, I think it would be refreshing to ha- have a coach from Africa come across and give that a different perspective and different level of freedom and decision making responsibilities. And like this, you know, forgive me if this is a slightly ignorant kind of question or perspective, but in some of the African countries, say for example, Morocco. Do they have mm-hmm. some kind of like junior rep program or do they are they playing like street ball and pickup games or what mm-hmm. what is it those pathways look like to get to play for someone so, like ASU? Yeah, because I'm kind of wondering like that freedom of play that we're talking about, I wonder mm-hmm. if that's coming from, you know, backyard, schoolyard kind of basketball because that's when you're given that flexibility and almost like you kind of have to be able to just read mm-hmm. and react and play well, a, little, yeah. a little bit more freedom. Yeah, I think um, there's two different avenues in Morocco and in the more established basketball countries, be that Angola, Egypt, Tunisia, what happens is they have academies or cadets and so they'll have players come up through that. And then on the other hand, they also have a lot of street ball, informal leagues, so even those kids in those academies will play in their academy games and then on Sunday they're out street balling. Mm. Um, the beautiful thing, and Paul will know in Rabat, is there are outdoor basketball courts everywhere. And like quality, I'm not t- like they've got great rings, they've got lines on the f- court, but they've got outdoor fitness places everywhere, which was, I was like, wow, I don't need to pay for a gym, I'm good. Um, and so... I think that, like you said, Jacinta, that definitely influences their, because there's not a lot of formal coaching, even at the junior level. Like I could just be an ex-player who has a kid that age and therefore I'm coaching that team, but I have no formal coaching experience. And that's what FIBA and the NBA are doing a really good job of at the moment of developing coaching courses and clinics so that we can develop local coaches. Fundamentally, the biggest issue in African basketball is lack of coaches or lack of quality coaches. And that's influencing the game. So what we might see in 15, 20 years is that level of freedom and openness is going to shrink like we've seen everywhere else mm-hmm. because we're going to have more formal coaching come in to play, which in one aspect might help close the gap between African teams and the world or we lose that spontaneity and spark that we see in African basketball. I'm hoping we don't lose the spontaneity because I think that some of the uh, part of the advantage of having a quality coach who's also got the playing experience, you know, hopefully would have also the experience of the spontaneity, the read and the react when you come off a screen. These mm-hmm. are your options. Let's drill them. And then I'm going to create an environment where you can practice them like in a simulation. I mean, that's training yes. really. But I, I definitely agree 
that the probably the quality of coaches because I've seen locally at a junior level too the quality mm-hmm. of coaches that has a lot to answer for in a sense of what we're seeing now and I don't want to mm-hmm. say that in a bad way because remembering a lot of our junior club coaches are all volunteers they're doing it for the exactly. love of the game uh, they're mm-hmm. doing it as a bonding thing between their kid perhaps um, yep. and we obviously want to keep those people around because generally they can be the hardest people to find is volunteers to do those kinds mm-hmm. of things, sacrifice exactly. six months of the year. But Yeah, it's a huge sacrifice mm-hmm. for coaches um, all around the world. Uh, a lot of the coaches even in Africa at the junior level are volunteer. You know, you'll, I'm always a huge supporter of, you know, you need me to come to a training session, I'll do it. I don't need to be paid ever really. And um, so I think at the end of the day, they're trying their best and that's all we can ask for. And if they don't have the opportunities, that speaks more to federations and clubs and our global federation than it does about them. Mm. And let's not go and sell in your coaching skills for free too willy-nilly, by the way. <laughs> well, it, it's so interesting because um, after the game on the weekend, I had a group of five girls aged between 15 and 18 they came up, like I walked out of the stadium and I was like, rush. And um, I was like, oh, well, hi. And they were like, oh, we, we play for the academy team for ASLE. Can you come in, come and watch us play? And I'm like, I'm not going to come and watch you play. I'll come and coach, you know, like let's have some training sessions. And the smiles on their faces, honestly, was just crazy. And the same thing happened. Um, I was part of a NBA coaching panel when I was in Senegal. And we brought in the Seed Girls, which is a private uh, academy in Senegal that has developed a lot of Senegalese national team players and um, some FIBA young girls as well. And we had this panel and we were discussing women's rights and women in sport and what they can expect from their careers. And after, they all like rushed up to me, photos, photos. I'm like, I'm totally getting COVID, but it's worth it. And... um, (laughs) And the NBA Africa president and BAL president were there. And I think they didn't realize until, I mean, I think they do to an extent, how much these young girls need to be amongst women and uh, to be able to have that interaction and to physically see us. Because I wasn't the only one. Uh, We had an NBA Nigeria female executive was there. Uh, We had a WNBA player um, and we had a female in hospitality. And so different, completely different range of all of us. And for them to be able to chat with us, see us in person, close that gap, instead of just being that role model, we can be that like walking, talking, breathing embodiment of who they want to be. And that actually all comes down to, and to tie it in, role models. Mm. And we spoke about this off air. WNBL, what are you doing? Mm. Like yeah. where, are the, where are the female head coaches? Why are you hiring men when we have capable women to do the job? I'm tuning in to watch the WNBL and I don't see anybody that looks like me coaching. So that's something that needs to be seriously addressed for the next season. And it's something I will continuously talk about when regards to basketball in in Australia. Because we've said it on here before and the three of us, you know, um, mentioned it on social media, support on social media as well, that representation matters. Yes. Like full stop. If you Mm -hmm. can't see it, then you don't know that you can be it. And I know that sounds like a really bad Australian tourism ad or something, but it's as simple as that. 
I can't tell you. I was in the first game of the BAL. We had just had practice and we were told to stay at the stadium because of the opening ceremony, represent Sully in the opening ceremony. And I'm wondering, I'm like, okay, I've just had practice. Let me, you know, cool down and walk around the stadium, just relax away from the team. And I'm in my like mask. I've taken off the Sally gear. So, cause I didn't want to draw attention to myself. And I get tapped on the shoulder and it's an Ethiopian woman with her two daughters. They must've been maybe about eight and 10. And she's like, are you, are you coach Liz Mills? I'm like, oh, damn it. I'm like, yes. <laughs> um, yes. And she's like, we're here to see you. And I'm like, we're not actually playing today. And she's like, no, no, we're going to come to every game and we're going to, we're just here to watch you coach. We like basketball, but we want to watch you coach. And her two young daughters were like, we want to be like you when we grow up. Oh, and oh my God. I'm like, I'm like, don't cry. Don't cry. (laughs) Um, I'm like, wow. And that meant more to me than any of the games played for them to want to coach because they've seen me do it. That's why I do it. I mean, I'm going to retire as soon as I do a world cup or an Olympics. So I could be done in two years, but having that impact is what it's all about. I am the coach I am today because I saw Carrie Graff marching up and down the sidelines of the Canberra Capitals. If I had not seen her do that, I wouldn't be where I am. That's uh, really kicked me in the, in the feels that story. Like I was tearing up and I, like I'm not exaggerating for the sensationalism of a podcast recording. People who know mm-hmm. me know that I tear up at lots of things. Yeah. Uh, so they will know I'm legitimate. But that's, yeah, that is a, uh, wow. You don't, yeah. you really don't understand how much of an impact your actions, your representation, your words can have on someone until it's reflected to you and in that perfect yeah. direct way of like, like yeah. we want to be like you, like. Yeah, crap. That's yeah. Cool. It blew my mind. It absolutely like thank God we weren't playing, right? Because <laughs> I, I would have been like, oh yeah, sub yourselves in, whatever. <laughs> like you know. <laughs> but I was at the games and I would see the women in the stands or across the court who were sitting courtside and being like, I have to re- represent these women to the highest caliber that I'm capable of because. It means the world for them to come out and see me, but to have their support means just as much to me, to know that they, they're rooting for me, they want me to be successful. Um, I'm going to have critics, and that's just natural, be that as a man or a woman. And so I know that I can look at them and find that support when things are getting tough and know that they have my back just as much as I have theirs. And I think that's a beautiful thing to know. But I also think you've got a magnified impact because it's North Africa and there are not as many opportunities for women in North Africa as there Mm. are in other places in the world. You know, the impact that you have on people is magnified significantly because of that fact and, you know, more so than it is here. You know, I mean, and that's really important. I agree. I Mm. think um, being able to be in this environment and be successful is crucial and i think i actually feel more pressure now than i've ever felt in my career to make sure that we are successful i mean what do you think it would say 
if we won the BAL. Mm. Oh, huge. Massive, huge. Like not only as a North African team to be successful and, but in terms of this is an NBA program. That's right. So you can't tell me that in France Pro A, you can't hire a female head coach now. Like don't even, don't even come at me with that bullshit. I'll be like, where are the female coaches in France? There's one in NM1, NM1, third division. There's some assistant coaches in Pro B, but you're telling me, or where are the head coaches in the NBL? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, shout out to Fleur. Yep. Uh, but where are the head, where are the female head coaches? Carrie Graff always says to me, I would have loved to have coached men. Hmm. I would have loved uh, it if she coached men too. Like, like, oh, she, like, she, she was, she, she was. Uh, I think it's a joke. She's like, oh, Liz, I'll come and be your assistant. And I'm like, Mm-mm. I will be your assistant. <laughs> <laughs> like, you are like an idol to me, and still are. So, you tell me to jump, I'll say how high. Like, mm. that's the level of respect I have for that woman. Um, she's been amazing, and I think, like, see, I don't have an assistant coach or a video coordinator. So I'm oh, doing, tough. yeah, so wow. I was the only coach in the ball not to have those things. And so there's that also that level of having to do all that work. Plus I was doing media every day for maybe two to three hours. Wow. So this is stuff that the male coaches didn't have to put up with. Not, mm. that, not that it was a burden, but like if, if I had assistant coaches in the video corner, I'd be like, oh, yeah, sure, no worries. Shit, I'll do this stuff for 10 hours if that's what you need. But at the end of the day, I was operating on maybe four hours sleep across the 10 days. And um, so I think there has been some disadvantages having been the only woman in my position. And that's like, that's what I was saying to a friend of mine, you know, once I've hit that first female to head coach an African national team at a World Cup or the Olympics, World Cups next year, Olympics is the following year. I'm done. (laughs) You know, I'm, I'm, I'm doing an ash body. I'm done. Uh, like, Get out while you're on top. Yeah, exactly. I think people see the media attention and they and what I'm doing, and they're like, "Oh, that must be so amazing!" And but it's physically and mentally taxing. I, I don't talk a lot about it in terms of that side of it, but being able to step away and not be Coach Liz Mills and start a new chapter is something that I'm very much looking forward to. <laughs> Exciting, exciting. Why yeah. not? Mm, definitely. Well, if you're back here in if you're back here in Australia, you could end up being a third hand on the podcast with us as well. <laughs> Why not? The biggest problem is you guys are amazing, and I would feel very inadequate. And secondly, I sometimes not very good at filtering, as you know. It like right. you, as soon as you hit record, I'm like, okay. Yeah. <laughs> let's let's be very careful about what I say. <laughs> but we got yeah. Mary as the super producer, so that helps. Yeah, yeah. that's true. That's true. And look, if, you, if if you subbed in for me, I reckon you'd probably we'd probably get more listeners than ah. Uh, I have. I highly doubt that. I highly doubt holiday in Senegal, getting paid to be a cheer man, a cheer squad in the crowd. Well, you can come and do that in Rwanda. Yeah, you can be the ASLE <laughs> cheer squad. <laughs> yes, yes, let's do it. Get out of here. Uh-huh. One thing that I want to ask about ASLE, only because we've had this conversation with Vanessa Fanusis about 
the club she played with in Greece. Does ASLA, they do more than just basketball, obviously. Do they yes, have- football, volleyball, like, yeah. So they're a club that covers all the sports. So, yeah, like, for example, I rocked up to training the other day to find that volleyball was still going because they had a friendly that I didn't know about. So that delayed our training for about 45 minutes, which I was thrilled about. Uh, but I was like, oh, cool, let's watch some volleyball. And so it's bigger than just having the basketball side of things. Yeah, I, the reason I'm curious about that one is because I think there's something really smart about that model, you know, mm-hmm. having a club with multiple sports because people support the club. Yes. And therefore they will come to watch the volleyball, the soccer, the basketball, and whatever other sports they're playing, which means you're kind of starting off with a with a built-in crowd. Yes, exactly. Right? Which is a great thing in terms of being able to build more community support for whatever sports are going on. Mm-hmm. And to, to be honest, the crowd that you saw in the videos from our game, they are the same crowd you'll see at the soccer game, the volleyball game, whatever. They're sully supporters they're not basketball supporters and so if the camera had zoomed across at so that was just at the baseline so at the sidelines they're the basketball fans they're the ones who are there because they love x's and o's they love supporting specific players but the fans on the baseline are sully fans and they bring their leftovers. yeah they bring the banners they yeah they bring the fireworks they bring the drums. <laughs> so that's them. Yeah, your regular basketball fan is, is there to enjoy the game. Yeah, because sometimes, and Jacinta and I have talked about this before, It's sometimes I think there's a lot to be said for that model. Mm-hmm. I agree. Right? Particularly in countries where you've got smaller populations. Yep. I also think it would work for women's programs. Yeah. Yeah. I think yeah. if... If you've got supporters that care about, doesn't matter what the sport is, then mm. it shouldn't really matter what the gender is. So if I'm rocking up to watch the men's team play, I'm going to watch the women's team play as well because I'm not linked to the to the sport. I'm linked to the the fanfare and the spectacle and representing like representing Sully as opposed to representing the men's team. Yeah. That's one of the things that Ness was talking about in terms of the, the club that she played at because I asked, you know, oh, do you get – a lot of crossover of, you know, people who support the men's soccer team coming to watch the women's basketball. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yes. Because they're, they're club supporters. Mm-hmm. And I think that would work really well here in Australia. I agree. Because yep. it's not like the States where you've got 350 million people or 300 million mm-hmm. people, and if you get, you know, 5% of them showing up as supporters for your sport, you've already got a built-in monster crowd. Yeah. Here, if you've got that, you know, five percent show up mm-hmm. all around the country. That's not a lot of people. It makes it very hard for a club to be able to be successful financially. Whereas mm-hmm. if you've got a uh, an association like Sally, where it's all sports under the one banner, you've got a greater opportunity for success. Couldn't agree with you more. And you know, thinking back when I was playing at uh, North Sydney or Northern Suburbs Basketball Association, the Bears, because I went from netball playing for North and then went across to basketball at 15 and to see zero interaction, but we play for the same club, Mm. you know, and then even when the rugby union team, the league team, there's no interaction or um, cooperation at all. Makes no sense to me 
And mm-hmm. so I felt that on a player level. Uh, but the smart move, like you said, Paul, would integrate everybody. And we have a clubhouse and, you know, the basketball teams go and watch the rugby teams and just building that camaraderie and community more so that we go and support each other regardless of what the sport is or if it's men or women, boys, girls, whatever. Yeah, yeah. You're supporting the club and the team, not just the team. Mm. Yes, exactly. Yeah, I I think um, that's a model that needs to be adopted in Australia. Mm, yeah, for sure. And like you said before, there's a perfect opportunity, particularly with women's sports. I mean, we're always the, our greatest supporter and our worst enemy is women as well. So if we can try and cement the idea of being stronger together and supporting one another and making the fan base and engagement more meaningful by building around that, I think it will have a lot, a lot of longevity um, I agree. in that model as well. It even speaks to your point about women. We operate in silos instead of together. And I'm part of the Basketball Australia Elite Female Coaching Development Program. And I said I got on a call because I I normally miss them just because of the time difference or I'm coaching or whatever. And I wrote an email after saying to them, hey, let's start a WhatsApp group so that we're more connected. We can share ideas and experiences and the challenges we face because we as female coaches need to develop a stronger community together. Instead of trying to be part of the boys club, let's start a girls club and let's build together and not to rival them, but so that we can support each other because a lot of the female coaches in that group, one's in South Australia, one's in Perth, one's in New South Wales. Like, and so we don't even interact. We don't even see each other. And you know me, I'm not even there. So like I think that ability to hit each other up and be like, hey, what are you running in pick and roll defense or what's your zone offense? That kind of level of discussion because normally we would just go to a man. Mm. Why don't we build each other up? Why don't we support each other? Let's create a community where, and a lot of female coaches say this, they're afraid to ask the question. So if we build that safe environment where we can learn from each other, just imagine how how much stronger we would be. And the same applies, be that from an administration side or from a player perspective. I don't think we do enough as females to embrace each other. But you've also got the ability, to what you were saying there, to be able to bring in coaches who may not be coaching now but can still act either as mentors or mm-hmm. as somebody who can bounce ideas off. I mean, you know, you've mentioned Graffy on a few occasions. So mm-hmm. imagine having her on that group so that if somebody sort of says, hey, I'm doing this with my zone offense. Yep. And she turns around and says, yeah, you know, okay, that's a good idea. Have you thought of? Have you mm-hmm. considered? So, yeah, okay, she may not be an active coach today. Yes. But that, do not discount the mm-hmm. amount of knowledge that she's got that she can bring to the table in a discussion like that. A hundred percent agree. Yep. And on the flip side, it was kind of disappointing because we only, like, I think there's 30 of us, but there's only 10 of us in the group. Oh, interesting. You know, and maybe people have been too busy in terms of getting, uh, responding. And I, I also think that the interesting thing about this program is that it's not very elite in terms of, like, so you've got someone like me working with national teams and professional teams, which is extreme, I know. But then you've got 
someone who's coaching under 12s for the first year of their coaching career. Very different experiences. And we can definitely learn from each other. But I think there's also that level of, oh, perhaps some of these coaches feel like it's not their place to be in our WhatsApp group with coaches such as myself. Or uh, they feel like maybe because they coach juniors, it's not the same as the people in the group who coach seniors. I think there might be numerous reasons why, but I think in the future there needs to be very different courses in terms of experience instead of just being like, hey, we're just going to put 30 women in because they're all female coaches Mm. and we're just going to learn together. I think that's something Basketball Australia might need to have a look at Mm. instead of ticking a box. Yeah, yeah. Because it's overwhelming like with uh, coaching basketball through different levels and age groups, there's certain milestones that you need to expect as well from those kinds of levels and age groups and it's hard to know what is current and what is appropriate when you're jumping in and coaching. You know, if I were to go coach uh, Div 2 under 14s, I was like, okay, what is a reasonable expectation of this group? Um, Do I just focus on nailing transition? Do I Mm -hmm. uh, focus on really good on-ball defense first and build it from there? Like, Or should they already know a basic motion offense? Like you don't know. Yeah, well, exactly. Yeah, exactly. And so the questions that I'm asking as that coach is very different to what I'm asking of someone uh, who's coaching in my position. Yeah. And like the equivalent would be, say, you know, Fleur and I sitting down. Mm. you know, or someone like Kristen Veal who's doing Centre of Excellence. And that makes it difficult to be in a group like that where you've got such a different spectrum of needs Mm. for coaches rather than, well, if it's elite, in my mind, that's professional. Mm. You know, that's not like they were talking about under 14 state. And I'm like, are you kidding me right now? That's actually not fair. On those yeah, coaches. 100%. Uh, it's not fair. 100%. Like I agree. There is no common ground for conversation, and mm-hmm. that is unfair on both sides. Exactly. And, it's not being snobbish about it. It's yeah. actually being this is not positive or productive for anybody in the room. It's a disservice to everybody in the room. Yeah. Mm. And, so, and that's what shocked me about it when we were at the very start of the program. When people were saying, hey, I've coached for 15, like there's an amazing coach in there, Lynn. Um, She's got like 30 years experience. And I'm like, yeah, I'm sitting next to you, right? And then we have coaches in there who don't even coach at the moment or are transitioning from players to coaches and this is their first year Mm. or, you know, coaches who have 10 years but they're coaching under 14s, under 16s. And so... I think it the mentality was more like let's just stick all these women in a room and let's say that we're building our female coaches. And I'm like, but you would never do that with men. No. You would like you think Brian Gorgian is going to sit in workshops with a player who has just started coaching? Nah, yeah. No, and if he did, he you know, he wouldn't do it multiple of times, would he? No. He might do and, it on the first time and be like, and then walk away and be like, what the f- is that? Yeah. Yeah, you got a point. You know? There's a real problem with, I think they're trying to go too far the other way, mm-hmm. uh, which is, okay, we've got to give everybody an opportunity. Yes, I agree. You've got to give everybody yeah. an opportunity. 
mm-hmm. but you're not giving people an opportunity by putting them in a room with somebody whose experience is not equivalent. Not, and I'm not saying equivalent. You want to put people in a room with someone who is better than them because that's how they learn. Yes. But you don't want to put someone in a room with someone who's got a skill level that is so far removed from where they are mm-hmm. because there's no common ground. It's very hard to find the common ground because, you know, someone in your position, mm-hmm. right, you know, anything you learned about coaching under 14s, yep. you've probably long forgotten. Oh, yeah. I, I, if someone said to me, come and coach an under 14s, I would freak out. I would panic because I'm like, oh, my God, what do I do with under 14s, you know? Yeah. Well, when those girls came up to me and said, can you run? I'm like, what am I going to do? What am I going to do? What am I going to do? Uh, dribble knockout, dribble knockout. Or, you know, <laughs> because I'm like, I have no idea what I would do with kids. And that speaks to your point, Paul. Like, or if you said to an under 14 coach, hey, come and work with my guys for a day. Yeah, absolutely. Again, they're going to panic because they're going to be like, crap. What am I going to do? Mm-hmm. Right? Because anything that I know, they've probably forgotten. Mm-hmm. And therefore, what benefit am I bringing to the table? You've got to be able to bring something to the table to push the conversation forward. Mm-hmm. If you can't push the conversation forward, there's no contribution. If there's no contribution, basically everybody's going backwards. Yes. And that's, that's a real issue. There are a lot of really talented female coaches in Australia. They're not getting the opportunities. Yes. And for a lot of them, they'll look at a program like that and go, yeah, okay, I could go and get it, but what's the ultimate end game out of that? Yeah, exactly. I think actually a better program would be pairing male coaches with female coaches. Mm. Yeah, Yeah. because at the end of the day, like basketball is basketball. It's the same sport, same rules. Like I've had, you know, debates about this with random people online. You know, it's fundamentally the same sport. So fundamentally Mm -hmm. as a coach you would have each males and females have the same capacity to develop the same coaching skills to understand the same principles. Mm -hmm. It's it's not a gender-specific skill set to be a sporting coach. No, at all. Gender has zero role in it. Zero. It's the same way as when people, you know, it's the traditional gender norms of like, oh, but women are just a lot better at maintaining a household. Well, (laughs) I mean, you have the same cranial capacity and physical capacity, you know, know, that we do to learn those things. It's it's not like we're born with it. (laughs) With a, you know, broom in our hand, off we go. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's not in our DNA to know how to, like, put on a roast or something. A hundred percent. And I think coaches who work with juniors are the best coaches ever because they've got to teach skills, fundamentals, and the actual game. And so I respect junior coaches more than I respect people who coach pro teams because our life is a lot easier. For the listeners, please don't think that I think just because you coach under 14s, it doesn't matter. I think you just have very different expectations and objectives than I do coaching where I do. And there is that cross-section where we can learn from each other, but in terms of being in groups, where I am looking to develop myself as a coach, I need to be talking to people who coach in the same level that I coach. I mean, no, pff, right now in the world, who, who the hell would I talk to that can relate? 
Mm, yeah. Like fundamentally, that's been the most difficult thing in my career. Finding, and I've had to have male mentors because that's the closest that I can relate to. And that's what I'm hoping to be able to develop. There's so many women that there will be so many women in my position that we can just talk to each other. We're not at that stage yet, but I fundamentally believe that instead of people ticking boxes and just creating, hey, let's have a women's forum for this. So let's have a women's group for that. Be very specific about how you are bringing women together and is it enhancing them as coaches or as players or as administrators or are you just ticking a box to say you've done it? Mm, yeah. What's the, the true intent and motivation? Mm-hmm. Exactly. Now, on this subject, mm-hmm. Senegal's has got a, a female assistant coach. Yes, Coach Cordy. Yeah. My question to you on that is, mm-hmm. she's probably the closest in terms of your role Yep. On the African continent. Would that be accurate? There's actually been some female head coaches of club teams as well in, okay. in other parts of Africa, like Nigeria was one. I think there's been one in South Africa as well. So it's not as rare as people think it is on the continent, but in terms of being active and in that kind of spotlight, like a continental league, she's yep. the closest for sure. And we had to have a Senegalese player that I know as an interpreter because I don't speak French. And so it was great to sit down and speak to her and kind of understand her experience, especially because at the end of the day, let's not take away from the fact that I'm a Western white woman. So my doors are more open than, say, an African woman. And so for her to be in that role, I think, is so much more meaningful than me being in my role because women in Africa can relate to her. And that's actually what matters. And I said to her, yo, you should be the head coach here. Like it was clear that the players had buy-in and no disrespect to their head coach. I just observing and things might be different behind closed doors. You know, I'm not privy to what goes on, but she has the skill set. She has the knowledge and the buy-in from the players that I didn't necessarily see from the head coach. And I think if Duke qualify again next year, I would be the one kneeling down being like amazing that she was head coaching in the BAL. You know, following on from that, what do you think is the the impediment for someone like her to be able to get that next step? Very much culture within Africa and it doesn't matter if it's north, south, east, west. Sport industry is still in infancy in Africa in many aspects. And so you'll see those male older coaches who are very old school just run a million you know miles an hour and don't have that technical knowledge Um, or if I'm a former player I become a coach I have no qualifications no experience I'm just this is what I'm going to do and so it's hard enough for women to play sport in Africa getting that opportunity to even just play like you notice in in the stadium in Sally how many women were watching let alone be a fan. Um, Mm. So you've got all those obstacles to overcome first and then to be in that leadership role in a society where you're, it's not acceptable for you to have that kind of power and authority. So I think those cultural barriers play a huge role in making women feel like they can't be a coach or they can't be a federation president. 
there are 54 countries in Africa, so I'm massively generalizing. There are some countries that are very open to that, like Kenya. We had a female team manager, for example. Right, yeah. Um, and I, the president of the Basketball Federation in Botswana is a woman. So I think let's take into account very different across the continent, but generally speaking, I think culturally and because of religion, that has had a massive impact on women in Africa. And while I see Coach Cordy probably being the first female head coach from Africa to work with a men's team at the BAL, and there's like, for example, there's no way she would coach the men's Senegalese national team. Not like that, that's not even a conversation you would have. Mm. So I think for me, education is how we're going to tackle that. But that's an entire other podcast. <laughs> Yeah, shelve that idea for later. Okay, yeah. we'll, we'll put that down on the list. It's great having you back on the show. I know you've got to get off to practice soon and it's early in the morning in Morocco. It's great having a chat, just going over things. I know we've kind of walked right away from our list, but, you know, these things happen. Tore up um, the list. I saw when, when Mary sent me the questions, I was like, good luck. <laughs> <laughs> well, actually, we pretty much covered them, but mm -hmm. you know, there's a whole lot of stuff in between as well, which is great. Yes. Really looking forward to keeping an eye on how the team goes. There's a whole bunch of questions I wanted to ask about the competition locally, but we'll let that go for another time. Good luck. And it's just great catching up with you again. Yeah. Paul, Jacinta, amazing as always. Like, no joke. I do a lot of podcasts and interviews now, and every time I walk away from them, I'm like, well, that was certainly no shooting the breeze, you know? Um, <laughs> That's awesome. Like, at, at the end of the day, the fact that even that you guys even care about what I'm doing, the fact that you care about Moroccan League or the BAL, and you're just willing to talk about anything and everything, like, yes, we've spoken about basketball, but we've spoken about so many other things as well. That's why I love coming on the show with you both and your passion for the game, doesn't matter where it is in the world, is it, it actually makes me excited about basketball again because sometimes, you know, you're in the grind and you're like, oh, man, let's, we've got to talk about this shit again. Uh, excuse my French. And, um, so you so don't think, speak French. Oh, I speak <laughs> a lot of French. I, I'm on my best behavior when I'm on the podcast. And so um, thank you so much again for the invitation. And, and honestly, I'm counting down the days till I can jump back on with you guys. Well, hopefully we'll be able to talk to you maybe just before the finals. Yes, yeah. that would be awesome. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Okay. Thanks so much, Liz, and we'll speak to you soon. Shooting the Breeze can be found on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and iHeartRadio. Don't forget to subscribe and share the podcast with all your friends.